CJ here, and welcome to the sound of black and brown. I hope wherever you are, you're having a great day. I myself, you know, it's a beautiful day outside, but my allergies are not being friendly. So we'll take it as it comes. Kind of like what's going on right now um, politically. We've seen a lot of things happening from Donald Trump <laughs> uh, seemingly, you know, walking into his own arraignment full of confidence to watching two black legislators, uh, lawmakers, have to fight for their own voice. Now, think about that. We have a former president, a white, privileged former president, who um, so far has been charged with at least 34 different counts of criminal activity. So you would think that we would all be jumping up and down. But, you know, even if you were, you would sit down when you see what happened in Tennessee here. And the thing about it is these two brothers, uh, Representative Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, uh, one is from Nashville, the latter is from Memphis, you know, really what they were trying to do is advocate for gun control. Now, a couple episodes ago, a couple weeks ago, I spoke on this and I said it, you know, right here in Connecticut, we attempted to pass gun control legislation and it was not taken well. It wasn't well received. Uh, many folks seem to have believed that this was more about their right to bear arms versus it was really about streamlining you know too many people have access you know it is too easy to get a permit and unfortunately um, due to the lack of control there's also too many different types too many dif different things happening and we should be concerned because when you look at where these shootings are happening and you look at who is being affected you know there's no sort of empathy. There's no sort of age restriction. Um, you know, no thought of, well, I'm about to not just ruin the lives of the caregivers and those involved in the lives of those who were, you know, killed or harmed. You know, but what about the people who have to see that trauma and, you know, deal with the fact that this is a moment in time that wherever their role was or whoever they knew, they could never undo. That's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of moving pieces with that. And, you know, America as a whole has a fascination with violence. You know, violence in America is entertained. It's as old as slavery. Now, uh, Ida B. Wells, back in her time, 1893, she wrote about lynch law. Okay. And in this publication, she would write about the number of people um, who would be lynched and for what reason, right? So let me pull this up here. So this is just ridiculous. Um, <laughs> so many lynched, right? Um, and, you know, the reasons for their lynching, you know, this is back in 1892. There it is, 1892 there were 241 persons lynched. And that number is divided amongst various states. 
and of those states included Tennessee, which of the 241 had 28, Louisiana had 29, Arkansas had 25, Alabama had 22. So what I'm trying to show you there, they ranked in the top three, Tennessee, okay? So of the 241, 160 were Negro descent, Four of them were lynched in New York, Ohio, and Kansas. The remainder were murdered in the South. Okay. And the charges range from rape to attempted murder. Right. No cause given. Race prejudice. Rioting. Murder. Assault and battery. These are the different charges these people were lynched for. You know. So this is an excerpt from Ida B. Wells writing here. A lynching equally as cold-blooded took place in Memphis, Tennessee, March 1892. Three young colored men in an altercation at their place of business fired on white men in self-defense. They were imprisoned for three days, then taken out by the mob and horribly shot to death. Thomas Moss, Will Stewart, and Calvin McDonald were energetic businessmen who had built up a flourishing grocery business. Their business had prospered, and that of a rival white grocer named Barrett had declined. Barrett led the attack on their grocery, which resulted in the wounding of three white men. For this cause were three innocent men barbarously lynched, and their families left without protectors. Memphis is one of the leading cities of Tennessee, a town of 27,000 inhabitants. No effort whatsoever was made to punish the murderers of these three men. It counted for nothing that the victims of this outrage were three of the best-known young men of a population of 3,000 colored people of Memphis. They were the officers of the company which conducted the grocery. Moss being the president, Stewart being the secretary of the company, and McDowell being the manager. Moss was the civil science, was in civil service of the United States as a letter carrier, and all three men were of splendid reputation for honesty, integrity, and sobriety. But their murderers, the well-known, have never been indicted, were not even troubled with a preliminary in examination. Part on my linguistic fear. I, I mean, I'm trying to read this calmly um, because really this is back from 1892. Put that in context of this week. Here we have someone, a real estate tycoon, and proudly so, who progressed, okay, and became president. And you say to yourself, well, how did that happen? Well, why wouldn't it happen? Right here in Connecticut, um, you know, we have seen the displays of white supremacy. There have already been, um, you know, hate rhetoric being shared. There's already militia walks happening, you know, but you see, the media is not going to show that. And they'll, you know, they'll justify it by saying, oh, well, we're not going to show it because... That's too violent. Well, it's not hypocritical because America itself is really obsessed with violence. You know, from the way that we interact with each other, 
I will own myself. There are times when I will get really angry and I have to woosah. Um, I try to catch myself because sometimes we really do things to each other that just provoke, you know. But then there's times when it goes right into violence. It, it surpasses an anger, you know, moment or angry moment rather. Um, you know, it just goes right there. So there's separate things happening here with the attraction to violence. There's a violence within our communities that we do to each other. And this violence doesn't always have to be physical, right? It could be how we talk to each other. It will be like, you know, not it could be. It is how we talk to each other. It is how we treat each other. It is the fact that, you know, there are times when we let each other down. That's all violence against each other, right? When we don't respect each other's feelings. You know, when we take each other for granted, when we when we don't realize that maybe it's not that bad and maybe this person deserves some understanding and empathy too. We take these things for granted, you know. Um, in our own communities, we're not seeing things happening like it used to. Something simple as young people saying good morning, right? That seems so passe right now. Like, the way that you know, our language, our words, our verbatim, you know, we seem to believe that we have to depend on these European things and words. In other words, we seem so reliant on saying and doing things the white way without realizing on a bigger scale how that does affect everything, okay? Here are these two young men um, who decided that they will take it upon themselves to get engaged in lawmaking. What is laws? Legally allowed white supremacy, right? Some of it is. Some of it is. And we're watching it right now. Now, these two men got up and stood up against something they found to be wrong. Instead, you know, they're saying, look, we need to have gun control. We need to figure this out. We can't have just each and anybody owning a gun. How could you punish these men for that? And not only that, but they're also getting crucified for how they wear their hair. I mean, if you thought that was a ooh, wow moment, just don't forget, we had to pass a whole law right here in Connecticut to make it legal for people not to be critiqued, written up, however you want to word it, for wearing their hair. Black people, brown people. Do you remember that? I, I didn't forget it, you know, because this just, you know, all of this just reminds me or it enlightened me if I need to be enlightened or whenever I forget, I could look around and see there's so much work left to be done in Connecticut. We have all these nonprofits that, take a lot of pride in serving our community, yet we don't see us in those higher positions, right? Connecticut prides itself in being so progressive, but really it's only progressive to a certain extent, to the extent that certain persons with privilege feel comfortable. The minute those people feel uncomfortable, they will make moves to make sure you do not remain comfortable. Trust and believe that. 
And just like what you see happening in Tennessee, don't think it's not happening right here in Connecticut. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Black and brown legislators don't walk into Hartford and get high fives. Let me tell you that, especially, particularly, I should say, those who are affiliated with parties that are not Republican. So the non-Republican, whether you be independent, whether you be Green Party, whether you be Democrat, whichever you are, as long as you're not a Republican and you're walking into that building, that legislative office building, as a black or brown person, the critique starts the minute your car pulls up on that parking lot. Okay? The challenge starts there. And that's why it's so important for us to not only hold our legislators accountable, but to really make the effort to support, encourage, and empower those who are about us. Okay, the ones who are really, really, really about us. Not the ones who say all the white things and do all the white things. No, 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 not those. We don't need, I'm not talking about the Uncle Toms. I'm talking about the ones who don't just talk that talk, they walk that walk. And it's not just four months out of 12. It's all months. It's every day. It's every time. The ones who show up when there's a call to action the ones who support the call to action, the ones who speak their truth and they say, listen, we need these laws to change because if they don't do it, who will? We already have a problem here in Connecticut. There's a lot of gatekeeping and gaslighting that happens and we don't talk about it because, you know, as I can say for myself, when you do, even in your own time, and away from anything, it will be held against you, okay? It doesn't matter. You could have this conversation with yourself in your bathroom, and somehow it's held against you, okay? And it's because that's a means of control. It's a means of exercise and power. It's a means of putting us in check, right? You know, we have all these nice laws, and we say that there's all these systems in place in Connecticut to promote diversity, but do they? Are they really doing that? Why do we feel better watching a white person talk about diversity when we know deep down that's not what that looks like? Okay? We have so many black and brown women, men, LGBTQ plus people out there who are doing so many great things, like really fantastic things. I mean, these folks are going the extra mile. These folks are driving their cars down to the last tire thread, literally, to ensure that they provide peer support, that they're providing, you know, resources and, you know, food or any type of support they can, peer support. The grassroots, grassroots is where you learn the meaning of peer support. Let me just tell you about that. Why did I just say that? See, in a nonprofit environment, Peer support is limited in many ways. I mean that in the sense of you can only really help so many people and you will only really have so many resources or whatnot, services to provide. The grassroots is the low-key person, the one on the ground, the one who goes and literally finds that and then aligns that. But they don't just stop there because... Even when you help the person, you know, get to where they need to be as far as what 
you know, whatever resources they're looking for, you're still going to be there to support them if there's a problem. I can't tell you how many times I've been to court with people and our conversation doesn't just start and end in the courtroom or leading in there. You know, there's times when people just need to vent. There's times when people have questions they're not comfortable asking, um, you know, lawmakers or, you know, anyone who's, you know, involved in the law, lawyers even. And they might ask us to help in that way. And, you know, it's a very, very important role in community. And you could build as many institutions as you want. And you could do all of those things. But the grassroots will always be there. Just know that. And it exists because the community wants it. Because not all of us have the um, access to or knowledge of or even feel comfortable in going to certain um, buildings, right, for varying reasons. We might have had a bad experience before. We may have language barriers. Um, You know, we may just feel lonely and not trusting people. We may have just had a traumatic experience. And we're just not, you know, we're registering all of that, right? We're, we're processing all of that. I'm telling you, some big things are happening in community right now, you know, and all these different moving parts. So all of that being said, as you move up the chain of need, yet you reach to the lawmakers, the chain starts on the ground. That's where the need starts. The need starts on the ground, and it ends with the lawmakers, Right. And um, how that works, when our lawmakers connect with the streets, that's when we really see the change happening. And I can tell you, I have the pleasure of knowing a few folks who do that. And they do it genuinely. And these are black and brown people, by the way. And I could call them up and I could talk about Donald Trump and we could laugh, ha, ha, ha. And then we could also talk about the law and the things we want to see change. And in that group are people within the community who are equally involved in changing the law. These are the fellow advocates and activists who, you know, as much as they say they can't do it no more, (laughs) you know, they still find, they find it within themselves. And they're walking, talking educators, you know, because a big part of making the change is educating people on why this needs to happen. And bringing it back to Tennessee... You know, right here in Connecticut, we had a similar situation happening. Very, very similar. And if you want to see it, go right to YouTube and look up the Judiciary Committee. You're going to look for HB 6667. And as much as you could tolerate, pay attention to that public hearing because it's not that different from Tennessee, right? For whatever reason, in Connecticut, which also, by the way, is home to one of the most horrific mass shootings in history. And by that, I'm referencing Sandy Hook, right? And despite that, in Connecticut, there's a big fascination with gun culture and with violence as a whole. And this is not limited to black and brown communities. Actually, the more predictable violence happens in black and brown communities. What do I mean by that? Well... I don't know if you knew this, but where there's poverty, there's going to be crime. There's going to be, you know, there's going to be homelessness. There's going to be joblessness. There's going to be all these different societal insecurities all in one hub coexisting. And so the reason why that's more predictable 
is because there's also the frustration. There's also the, I keep trying, but I can't get up. There's also, I walk out into the world and I keep getting judged. There's also the, I can't wait to get out of here. All of that is happening in the hood. And more. Oh, trust me, there's probably some I forgot. I know that. But the point being, when it happens here, it's more predictable because we know what type of violence to expect. You're going to get certain types of violence. These mass shootings are getting more unpredictable, in my opinion, and more savage. As if one has to outdo the other. As if they sit there and say, I'm going to go do this, but I want to make sure I do it in a way that you remember me. So each time, it's a level up, it's a level up, it's a level up. And who pays for that, right? Now, Donald Trump is a supporter of violence, you know, and the hypocrisy in that in of itself because here's somebody who's pro-life but also not against people getting violent for his sake. Let me say that again. Here's someone who decided he's pro-life but is also not against people getting violent for his namesake, right? You don't really hear him saying, shame on you, supporters. Why would he hold them accountable? And don't be surprised by that behavior because white supremacy is as old as time and it goes from top down. It happens in the workplace. It happens in the classrooms. It happens in the stores. It happens on the buses, literally everywhere. Does it happen all in the same way? No. I'll go talk about one that we know well on the job. You see the cliques forming up. You see who's closer to whom, who's working with whom, all the different allyships. But what you also see is how we get played against each other very easily. Because when we don't do what they want, they know how to pull us against each other. Trust and believe that. We see it in the schools when different schools have not only different enrollment requirements, but they ignore the fact, blatantly ignore the fact, that certain students would not have access to certain resources. So the expectations, the bar is set high. So for instance, for students who are attempting to pursue something, say, I don't know, um, let's do something environmental, right? Let's say you had a student who really wanted to really do um, environmental reform, climate change work. And so they go to college saying, okay, I want to really engage in this work. But then they go into the college entrance interview and they have to interview alongside students who live in houses, not apartments, have backyards, not just paved sidewalk, have solar panels on their house, not a broken furnace, have animals that they take care of and they could, you know, create their own soil and recycle as opposed to having a recycling bin filled with plastic and cardboard boxes. So you see the differences here. 
Now, while those differences should be obvious, because you would think educators would be empathetic, that's not how that goes. Instead, what happens is the dream is challenged and the lack of access and the lack of opportunity is thrown in our faces because when they go to interview, they're interviewing next to the people who have those resources, the privilege. And they have to sit there as we are trained to do as black and brown people and just be okay. It's the same thing that happened when we reopened society. Black and brown people were expected to just be okay. The people with the privilege, they get the understanding. They get, you know, oh, well, maybe you should take mental health days. Let's do, you know, some type of mental health thing and focus on this. All the empathy in the world. But those without that privilege had to make sure that you know they showed up to work on time they had to be flexible with their schedule right not knowing what their schedule is like which i don't know if you ever had to do that but that makes it even harder to have two jobs if you're trying to have two jobs and you don't know what your schedule is like how do you do that so you got to pick one and run with it they got to show you know provide service with a smile even though, you know, equipment might be broken or, you know, the company doesn't want to invest in certain things, they have to deal with the customer complaints. They have to contend with working at a particular pace and producing a particular level of quality. Again, no understanding. Now, this is happening while black and brown people repeatedly have to witness these mass lynchings and that's not a term I'm using literally I'm using it figuratively to say that just let's not forget we have to sit here and listen to George Floyd cry out we had to sit here and watch all these different mass shootings happen and hear about the vigils and watch the little marches which by the way in case you missed it did you notice we're not marching as much anymore? Did you wonder why? Because your feet get tired. I know mine are. I have bunions on top of bunions now. You get tired marching when the legally allowed white supremacy stays the same. And that is happening right here in Connecticut. Don't you think, please don't you think, don't get confused. Our black and brown legislators have a hell of a lot of judgment to contend with. Just like you do when you work amongst white privilege. It's the same thing, just in a different way. The same way you have to work with Karen and Becky and you know that they're trying to cut you down behind your back. But what could you really do about it? You got to get that paycheck, right? So you're busying yourself trying to figure out how do I survive this shit. And even in your best effort, they still try to fuck with you. Or they still try to fuck your shit up. And when that doesn't work, They'll pin you against each other. And that's how that goes. So just like how they do it up in Hartford, they do it on the job, they do it in the schools, they do it everywhere they go. They can't help themselves. This is how white supremacy works. They even do it in the movement. Listen, I have had to politely <laughs> and uh, 
quietly for my own sanity and personal peace, decline to work with certain groups and individuals because Black and Brown United is about amplifying and empowering Black and Brown voices. We take this very seriously, and it's it's something that we treasure. So I won't say when we feel challenged, but I would say when there are white privileged folks who feel like it has to be about me and make it about themselves and highlight themselves, why would we want to participate in that? Why would we want to be a small number in your crowd? Aren't you tired of doing that? I know I am. I am. You know, I was watching the finale of the Wu-Tang Clan um, show there. I don't know if this is going to be continued. I, I wasn't really sure. But that last scene where they're performing at the concert is quite reminiscent of what happens when, you know, some of us have to go to certain jobs and places. You're the smaller number of the bigger group. So Wu-Tang was performing at this arena, and the concert was, you know, rock and roll based. So they assumed that they wouldn't get well received, because why would these people know about hip-hop? And as it would turn out, these folks were actually very big Wu-Tang fans. And from how the uh, story was shown, it seems like they came more for Wu-Tang, less for the other group, in my opinion. But the point being... We walk into these environments not knowing how we will be received every day. Every day we wake up and we go out in that world, black and brown people do not know how they will be received. And so it's a continual attempt to exist in this society. And some of us, we stay true to our roots and we're proud of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And some of us decide, you know what? I can't deal with this no more. I like that over there better. And, you know, we start tomming on. And we think, they're going to take care of me. They're telling me all the white things. And they're showing me all the white things. I feel like I'm white too, so why not? It happens, right? And some of us don't even realize that subliminally, due to how, you know, we interact with others, you know, from wherever we may be, whether it be in school, work, outside, wherever, in the park, wherever, we may have actually adapted certain uh, whiter habits (laughs) that we don't realize until we interact more with those more like us, at least in appearance. And we might get uncomfortable when we get called out, or we might inhabit these habits and think that these are tools to succeed not realizing what we're really doing to ourselves. You know, you should never enter a community in an attempt to take it over and and dominate it. That's white supremacy in action. When you start doing that, you just might as well put on your cloak and decide to call yourself a grandmaster. That's not how that should work. If we're talking solidarity, let's work together, and we should understand if black and brown people are in, involved and they are there to represent their cause and stand strongly for that, don't get in their way. That's what a real white ally would do. Now, if you doubt anything I just said, then you need to go and read up on what happened in Tennessee, which started with the incident on March 30th, right? Because these two representatives, Justin Jones, Justin Pearson, 
They interrupted the state house proceedings with megaphones and protests calling for stricter gun control because of the recent mass shooting in Nashville, right? And this is something that has been long debated, not just in Tennessee, right here in Connecticut, right? And this was a very powerful, powerful, powerful civil disobedience, you see. Now, I ain't gonna lie, these two guys had me wondering if I should move to Tennessee. Those are the kind of lawmakers I'm talking about. That's how you do it, right? You have the ability to walk up in there and use your position to take a stand and do it. There's no reason why that should not be happening here. Again, we have a lot of oppression happening right here. Once again, don't get confused with homelessness. Homelessness has different faces. Homelessness comes in different ways. From couch surfing, house to house, long stays, cars, bathroom stalls, cafeterias. I could go on. Those are all, you know signs of homelessness, working jobs that have homes, you know, you know, in homes or whatever. However, I should word that that I didn't. But the point is, is that these lawmakers said, look, this is a problem. And they said, we're going to lead this civil disobedience. We're going to make it bold. And, you know, we're going to stand tall. You know why? Because civil disobedience increases human rights. And that's what we need to remember. We have to stop the legally allowed white supremacy. We got to call it when we see it. If that means correcting your friends or your relatives or whoever you need to, when you see them acting too much on that side of the fence, rein them back in. Have those weird, awkward, hard, strange conversations. Don't let this shit slide. Because when you do that, you're playing into their hand, right? You're playing into their hand. And if you forget what that looks like, then play back that tape of Donald Trump walking into his arraignment, knowing full well he's not going to be arrested. Now, in comparison, there's a lot of talk, not just about arresting Jones and Pearson, but stripping them of their title, just like that. Look how fast the law worked in that favor. The speed of light. What does that remind you of? That reminds me of the number, the increase in ongoing number of police brutality instances. That reminds me of the number of people who have lost jobs because one person didn't like one thing and it became personal, but it was masked legally. And it does happen. It does. That reminds me of, you know, students who do not get to pursue their athletic goals. Or other goals, you know. They don't get to see the whole dream. Why? Because that one person decided it was okay to flex that muscle just like that. That one hand of racism. And this is why we have to stop the legally allowed white supremacy. Listen to me. If you're in a place of privilege, and when I say privilege, if you're a white person... And you have that power. This is the time that you make up your mind. Don't think about all the times you couldn't and you didn't. Decide today that today is the day this stops. It stops. So 
you know, it's important. It's important. You know, the fact that all these people are walking around here without those types of support. Think about it. Don't you think your work life and school life and general interactions with community would be different if we actually had mental health days? Not PTO. Forget PTO for a second. Right? This is separate from your vacation time. Very separate. Don't you think your life would be different if we didn't allow ourselves to get so caught up in consumerism to the point that we think, you know, it was no big deal to have the malls open on a Sunday or, for that matter, businesses open? I actually miss those days. I think we did a huge disservice to community by having the seven-day work week. And you would think after COVID that all of this would have made sense. Like you would think that things like mental health days would make sense. You would think that having a consistent work schedule would make sense. You would think that um, making it so that we have more access to opportunity for black and brown students would make sense. You would think that it would make sense to ensure that your MSW program or LCSW program, or your teaching program, internship, the internship piece was feasible, meaning you had, you know, weekend classes at the very least, or at least not limited to four months where people couldn't work. You know what that means to some black and brown students? That means they can't do anything. How are they going to pay their rent, especially now, especially those who are living on or trying to make it on their own? That's another thing. America has an obsession with Yes, your individuality. But what does that really mean? What does that really mean? We have lost touch, I think, with community. And to me, what these two legislators showed is exactly that. They respect their community. They respect their community so much. They're willing to put it on the line. They didn't care. They were like, look, we know if we don't stand up against this, guess who's the ones who's going to be most impacted? Guess who's going to be the ones most affected? We know that, and so we're going to stand up against it. Would it have been great or good still, because we're still in the legislative session? Would it be amazing to see that type of representation here in Connecticut? Hell yeah. Absolutely. Why not? Why not? What do you have to lose? You only have everything to gain. And that's the thing, because you see... Did you all forget? We knew coming into this legislative session, you have to know where our power lies. We know the Republicans are in the House. They're going to kick it up. They're going to do it. They they knew that. They Listen, this is what I keep telling you all. I give them, I don't want to, but I'm not going to say the word. Here's the thing with the Republicans. They know how to strategize. They said, okay, we didn't win this and that, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to stay a united front. We're going to stay real united. We don't care. Doesn't matter. Wrong and strong. Who gives a shit? But we're going to stand strong. And that's what they've been doing. And that's what needs to happen now on the opposing side. You see, power in numbers. Now is the time when we should be seeing that type of, um, you know, civil disobedience across the board. Across the board. Every state. All legislators should do the same damn thing Jones and Pearson did. You want to see the legally allowed white supremacy change? Then stop engaging it. Stop giving it life. Stop allowing it to coexist in your house. 
get up and stand up and get the white allies who support you to be there because there are white people who are willing and they're ready. They they don't want to be the highlight. No, 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 no. They want you to do your thing and they will be right there to help you do your thing. They want to support you. They want to ensure that you could get what was taken away. And they, they know that. And some of them, it might have taken them a while to get there, but let's not hold them against that. If they're showing signs that they're genuine and they, they understand and they respect why their place should be in the background, those are the people we want. Those are the people we want. Why? Because they recognize the significance of space. And they respect why they should not be encroaching on our space. And they recognize that historically their ancestors not only took our space, but have been controlling our space. And right now we need to remind them whose house it is. And the time to do that is right now. We need to get up and stand up and say, whose house? Our house. Stand up. Jones and Pearson did it. And they did it fearlessly. And even with an afro. And even with some nice wave set. That was a nice wave set. Give my boy give my boy some credit there. The outfits were on point. We look civilized because we are civilized. So what if we wear baggy jeans sometimes? Or baggy clothes? Or listen to Biggie? Doesn't matter. We're still good people. And we still have a lot that we need to get back. And that time to do that is right now. So if you saw what Jones and Pearson did. And you feel. And you know. And you want that to happen right here. You reach out to your lawmakers. Say, hey, listen, don't give up on that rent cap. No, 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 no. Say no to having the school resource officers in Connecticut schools. Say no to that. Say no to that. We need the gun control. We can't have the same thing that's happening in Tennessee happening here. And again, if you doubt anything I just said, then go back and watch the testimony. We need to stop allowing the corrections officers to rape Inmates, what did I just say? I'm talking about the fact that these strip searches that happen in our facilities, amongst other things. Did you know that there are corrections officers who show up to work drunk and high? Did you know that? Oh, how about the ones who sleep on the job? Yes, that's happening. I was told this is happening in quite a few of them, actually. You know, and that's allowed. These are people who are getting paid how much money? But then the ones who are trying to do a good job, the black and brown ones. They're getting harassed. They're getting bullied. See, that's another thing. Connecticut Connecticut loves, white people in Connecticut love bullying black and brown people. They love it. They love it. You know, so don't think that the white supremacy is not happening. It just depends on how you're looking at the picture. Oh, it's happening. It's happening in different ways. It happens on the job, it happens in the schools, it happens on the bus, it happens at the grocery store, it happens, at, you know, when you go to get coffee, it happens, you know, and we need to say enough is enough. It's happening right here in our legislative building. Yes, it is. It's happening right here. You know, we have legislators who are being attacked. Why? Because they're getting up and standing up. And the community needs to say, guess what? We support you. We want you there. We stand with you. Right? A person should not have to be condemned for sharing their opinion. Okay? Just like, you know, we are expected to accept what other people say. Where's the acceptance on both sides? 
As my father says, you know, disagreement is good. That's how you make things change. So if we all agreed, what will change? And ironically enough, that's what causes the bullying. Because really, they don't want anybody to disagree. They just want it to be one way, and it typically is the white way. So, again, if you have not, check out what's going on in Tennessee and think about it. Think about what you want to do next. Think about how you want to see things change. What are you tired of seeing? What What's bothering you? Okay, what needs to change? And if you don't know, find the black and brown brothers and sisters who are in the fight and help them with the fight. There's so many things you can do to help us do what we do. It's unbelievable. And guess what? It doesn't always have to be, you know, a protest either. It could be something as simple as you picking up the phone, calling your lawmakers and holding them accountable and saying, listen to me, why do we have to study rent control? Why do we not understand that we need to have community health workers and peer support workers? Why are we even arguing about a Husky Husky Sea expansion or undocumented people having insurance? Why, Why are all these things being debated in such a progressive state in 2023? Why is this happening? Why do we think it's okay for correctional officers to exercise their power in aggressive ways, including strip searches. Why do we think it's okay for, you know, these restrictive conditions as far as uh, school enrollments and program participation? Why are we not seeing that these are all different ways that we could really demonstrate the diversity, equity, and inclusivity we claim to be about? Why don't we recognize and support the need for more black and brown representation in high spaces. Don't just check the box. Don't just check the box. Don't just file for the grant and say, I have five black people, fire them all, and then file for another grant. Don't do that. Where's the accountability? Where's the accountability? Right? We got to see it for what it is. Why would all these white people get up and stand up against gun control? Man, listen, I don't know how you all could sit here and be Republican. I genuinely don't. I'm not saying you have to be a Democrat. I'm just saying I don't know how, you know, because quite frankly, I'm not a believer in the two-party system, nor am I a believer in any circumstance or situation which upholds white supremacy, which includes subliminal racism. Subliminal racism comes in forms of, you know, passive-aggressive words and actions. You shouldn't be allowing people to growl at people, and that's okay. You shouldn't be allowing people to dismiss people, and that's okay. And you definitely should not be allowing people to shove other people out of spaces and think that's okay. Because it's not. None of it is. None of it is. We're tired. We're so tired, you don't even see us showing up to the marches about our cause. Right? Now, the Honorable uh, Elijah Muhammad told us about the camera. Right? We could talk about the downfall of the Nation of Islam, but I want to draw your attention to his, uh, you know, words on the white man's media. He was quite right with that because you know what happens. Some of us get so caught up in notoriety, we forget the cause. What did I just say? I say that we get so caught up in notoriety. We don't care what the white people around us do to our fellow black and brown brothers and sisters. We don't care that they just showed up on the cause and they're shoving us out of our space, disrespecting our leaders. We don't care that, you know, they show up and now they're telling us how to run our businesses 
and our causes because what? They know how to do things the white way. They don't care that, you know, they want to make sure you know that they got this done or that done. They don't care. Those are not white allies. That is white supremacy. And I could go on for days on that because these people don't care. Let me tell you something. I've dealt with alleged white allies, alleged big bold words. They're so happy to be a white ally, but they're also so happy to tell me what they have done for the movement. Let me tell you something. When it gets to the point that the self-gratification becomes the main squeeze, just give yourself a tap in the back, look in the mirror, and recognize you're a white supremacist. Because if you just did all of that because you want to get an Academy Award or something, then you did it for all the wrong reasons. If you just took over the project, if you're leading the project, if you're running the place, and you have no problem exercising your whiteness, if, you know, you get too uncomfortable around the realness, then you are a supremacist. If you'll make sure to write that budget in a way where only certain people get that increase and other people just have to figure it out, congratulations, you're white supremacist. If you decide to make staffing changes, program changes, any changes, and you decide, okay, let me play a game of cards here and shuffle this deck. And I'm going to get rid of you. I'm going to shift you or however they do it. But you justify it. And you don't care how that person has to eat. And you don't care how that person has to survive. Congratulations, you're white supremacist. When you sit there and you exploit someone's work. Or you demean them with their work. Using their work as an example to teach others. Focus in the team meeting on one person, not including the feedback, not encouraging staff to provide feedback or have that inclusive environment, not having those weekly meetings, not allowing people to voice their opinions without recourse, being fearful of how people express themselves off the job. That is all signs of a white supremacist who's uncomfortable. Because if it didn't matter to you, you wouldn't feel threatened by it, would you? And it's so funny because when the community went under lockdown, who bought the most guns? Who decided that they had to have all the military equipment? Who decided that, you know, instead of toilet paper and paper towels, we need to buy (laughs) machine guns and, you know, tear gas and all this other stuff? Who thought it was a better idea to invest in the military? and less in community programs and education and building less, you know, prisons and more schools. Who thought of all those things? So again, in one week, we saw white supremacy in action from start to finish. And if you miss it, I invite you to look at it again. Now, you mightn't like what you see, but I didn't tell you you would. But what did you learn? And what are you going to do next? That is the question. The people united will never be defeated. Check us out. We're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. And the time is now for us to get up and stand up. We have to stop the legally allowed white supremacy. Don't you think? 
That's all for now. Fist up. Smile on.